Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again are so thankful to call you our Father, and we're so thankful for Jesus, and we ask that your Spirit will come and join us, enlighten our minds, draw us close to you, and give us discernment at this time in history, and enlighten us and empower us to be your agents to take a, a saving and healing message to this world who so desperately needs it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing Lesson 8 in the uh, quarterly, Making Friends for God, The Joy of Sharing His Mission, and the lesson titles Ministering Like Jesus. I received this email this week. It says, to Dr. Jennings and the entire class and all the online people, without this class, me and my spouse would truly be lost and stuck in an impossible place with God constructs that were ruining our lives. You happily sent uh, a case of remedy about three years ago, and we gave them out to others who we knew are stuck believing in penal substitution God. It's not an exaggeration to say that your Bible class has been a lifesaver. For all the reasons that you teach, so many in our lives are immovable from their position. Parents, friends, family. It's hard, even depressing, to see everyone reaching out for comfort from all the wrong sources. The last few months, it's been especially hard for us as we struggle to make God our first priority. You've mentioned several things that that we are still dealing with, and sadly, I know we've come up short. But God has blessed us with a child, and we have never been so happy most of the time. Most of the time in parentheses. (laughs) We hope uh, to be the best parents uh, one could have. We also wanted others in the class to know that they are very much appreciated. Russell, Wendell, Linda, and all the rest. You are in, uh, in the prayers from online participants, and thank you for being great. Memory verse for this week, Matthew 9, 36. But when... He, speaking about Jesus, saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Why were they like sheep having no shepherd? Didn't they have the scriptures in all the synagogues? Didn't they have the ceremonial system to teach them? Didn't they have the Sabbath? Didn't they have a priesthood? Why, with all of these benefits and agencies from God, were these people like sheep without a shepherd? We're not talking about the Romans. He's looking at the children of Israel, and they're like sheep without a shepherd. Why? Have you considered that? Bible, ceremonial service, weekly Sabbath, priesthood, sheep without a shepherd. Because they didn't have the truth about God and his design law for life. And why didn't they have this truth? Isn't it in Scripture? Isn't it revealed in the little drama of the ceremonial system? Uh, Doesn't the Sabbath declare God as creator, and doesn't creation operate upon design law? So why were these people sheep without a shepherd if they still had these things? Because Satan is a liar. And Satan has been lying about God's character and God's law from the beginning And the enemy's lies have been so effective that all of these tools that God had given to reveal the truth about himself have been misunderstood and misapplied. All these things were were presented through the imperial human law lie. So the people needed God himself to come and reveal God. So here's a section from the book Desire of Ages, starting in page 21. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. Paul's right there, glory. When you think of God's glory, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Is it his loving character that gives? Or do you think fire, lightning, energy? Unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. So when you think it is the glory of our God to give. I want to suggest the ultimate glory is not about energy or fire. It's about his character of love. Glory of our God to give. Uh, Continuing on with the quote. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. Pause. What does the law of life mean? The law of life. What is it? Wouldn't it be the law upon which life is built? 
Okay? And, and this law is what? It's the great principle of what? Of giving. Of other-centeredness. Of outward moving. It's the design which originates in God himself and his character and which the creator built in, as the operating principle into the universe that he constructed. And this life energy flows out from God, continuing to sustain as he continues to give himself to sustain his universe. Continuing on with the quote. All things Christ received from the Father, but he took to give. Meaning, the reason he took things from the Father, received and took from the Father, was for the purpose of giving it away. He didn't take it for himself. He took to give. As a human on earth. He took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all the created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. So Jesus is the agency through which the Father works his will. The Father has a plan. The Father has a heart. The Father has a desire. The Father has a vision. vision. The Father has power. The Father has a purpose. And Jesus... Is remember the Godhead, the agency through which the Father achieves his purpose. It's through the Son. And the Son receives the Father and what the Father wants and carries it out. That's why God, all things were made through Christ. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Not because the Father couldn't make it, but this is how love works. Continuing on with the quote. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry to all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. God is the source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit, or circle, the circuit, of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. I mean, how much plainer can this be? And yet, people are blinded by human law constructs. Keep going with the quote. In heaven itself, this law was broken. What law? What kind of law is being described here? This rule, this imperial enactment, this legislative edict, or the very principles of life that emanate from God that he constructed reality to operate upon. This law was broken, the law of life. Okay? In heaven itself, this law was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Sin, is it rule-breaking or breaking the protocols of love that life is built upon? If sin is breaking the protocol of life, if that's what it is, what will it result in? Protocol of death. It results in death. So the wages of sin is death because you're breaking the very protocols that life are built upon. This is not an imperial rule that you're somehow being inflicted upon you. It's the only result, death. And if one is out of harmony with life, if one has this terminal condition, if one is dying because of their sin condition, then what would be needed to save them? A remedy that does what? Heals, heals by doing what? Restores us back to our... Restores in the one that's out of harmony the very principles of life. Thus we have to be reborn. We have to have the law written on the heart and mind. We have to have the mind of Christ. We have to be regenerated. It's very, very practical and reality-based. It's the restoration of the law of life. Do you see how the penal legal lie obstructs God's healing plan? See, if, if salvation is restoring us to harmony with God and his law by restoring it in us, the penal legal lie removes the problem from us, puts it in a courtroom somewhere off in the universe, puts it in legal accounting things called books, uh, has a, a, an argument happening before uh, the heavenly uh, uh, judicial council with edicts and rulings being made based on some external payment being applied to some book. It obstructs the entire plan of salvation. People aren't even asking for God to heal their hearts and minds, they're asking for the payment to be, to be covered, for the, for the blood to be applied, for the erasure of the record. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. He sought to gain control 
He sought to gain control of heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator and to win their homage to himself. Gain control of heavenly beings? How? How would he gain control of heavenly beings? Was, was, he, was he going around with um, some type of photon chains and trying to shackle them and, uh, and use uh, you know, lightsabers to force them into a heavenly prison of some kind with a force shield? To, to, is this what he was doing? Is this a physical control he's trying to get? No, he's trying to control their minds. How would he get their control? How would he do it? Lies. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. This is how he sought to get control, to get them to believe falsehoods. Then he can control them. Do we see this in society today? Do we see people being controlled by lies? It's incredibly powerful. The truth, however, will set you free. Continuing on with the quote. Therefore, he misrepresented God. There it is. Gaining control. Therefore, he misrepresented God, attributing to him the desire for self-exaltation. What do we call that? Doing evil and projecting it on to the innocent. I will tell you, I see this every day in our society. People doing something evil and projecting it on to the others. Blaming, they're the ones, they're doing it, not me. Constantly. He misrepresented uh, God, attributing to him the desire for self-exaltation. Satan had the desire for self-exaltation, not God. With his own evil characteristics, he sought to invest the loving creator. Thus he deceived angels, thus he deceives men. So many people. And he doesn't do it by evidence, by demonstrating evidence of God's self-exaltation, because there isn't any. He does it by declaration and proclamation. Watch for this in society today. Watch for the people that are constantly just yelling things, bigot, homophobe, racist, just constantly yelling it. No evidence. Just constant labeling, declarations. He led them to doubt the word of God and to distrust God's goodness. Do you believe that any being is good? Goodness. He led them to distrust the goodness of God. Do you believe any being is good if you simultaneously believe that that very being will torture and kill you if you don't love them? See how he gets them to undermine the goodness of God by teaching that it's only just and right that if you don't obey God and do what he says, that justice requires that God use his power to torture and kill you. That's justice, guys. That's the imperial lie. And this is how he got angels and people to doubt the goodness of God. God isn't good. He's actually a torturer. He's a murderer. Keep on with the quote. Because God is a God of justice and terrible majesty, Satan caused them to look upon him as severe and unforgiving. When you hear these words, what's, what's the first question you should ask yourself? What law lens am I looking through? What's, if you believe God's law works like human law, just a system of rules that he makes up that requires external oversight and enforcement, what's justice then? Holding accountable and inflicting punishments. That's what justice is under the human model. If you believe, though, God is the creator and his laws are design laws, then what does justice look like there? Justice is always doing what's in harmony with the law of love, seeking to heal and restore, to save that which is lost. Yet, still, love requires what? Freedom. Freedom. So after everything in your power to save, to heal, to win back to trust, if someone persists in rebellion, persists in, in alienation, persists in sinful living, what is the just and right thing to do? Let them go. And when, when all life uh, originates of God and, and is sustained in harmony with God, if God lets them go, gives them what they insist upon, what happens to them? They die. So this is justice. He is a God of, of justice and terrible majesty. But Satan twisted it all and had it become a God who is severe and unforgiving. He won't forgive you. He'll hold you. He'll kill you. Because why? We believe his law works like human law, system of rules that design law. 
This is the message of the three angels, people. This is the message, the final mercy to lighten the world, to see God as creator and his laws as design laws. Yes. Even before humans were created, though, the very nature of Satan's argument implies that he had this idea in his head. That's right. That's right. Creation. That's right. Uh, that was his, not, not, the not foundation of his argument. Pre-creation of Earth. Yeah, okay, pre-creation of Earth. Yeah, yeah. That was his argument with angels. That's it, that is God correct. has an arbitrary system of rules and he imposes it on us. That's right. We're naturally holy. We can't be... That's right. We just have rules that restrain us. Yeah. That's right. He, he argued, and, and if you do break one, every sin requires punishment, urge Satan. Yeah, exactly right. This was his argument from the beginning. Thus he drew men to join him in rebellion against God, and the night of woe settled upon the world. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened and the world, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. What caused the world to be in darkness? What, what, what's the source and cause of the darkness? The belief in a lie causing misapprehension. The lies about God that, uh, that humans believe. That's right. Lies about it. And, and then if that's the source of the darkness, what would be needed to lift the darkness? Light, which is truth about truth about God. That's exactly right. How can this be achieved? Can the lies and distrust of God be removed by threatening to kill anybody who believes the lies about God? If you believe the lies about me, I am holy and righteous, and it offends my righteous character, and my justice will require that I torment and kill you, so better not believe those lies. I believe. Is that, is that how you get rid of the lies? By threatening to kill the people who believe the lies. Do you understand? That's Christianity. That's what's been taken to the world. This is why the world went into an age of darkness. This is why God is calling for people at the end of time to lighten the world, so prepare the world for His coming. Because the message of Christianity has been perverted. It's also called the wine of Babylon, and it intoxicates the whole world. They're drunk. They're stuporous. They can't discern and figure things out because they're trying to process it through the drunken lies or the, the intoxicating web of, of justice being proper punishments and payments. So they can't discern. You look at the world around us. How many people can't discern? Because they have assumed the lie. So you can't remove the lies by threatening to kill people who believe the lies. Can you remove them effectively by a declaration and a proclamation? No, it's just not true. It didn't happen. Even if that statement is a true factual statement, will that actually remove lies? What's needed? Evidence. Notice, though, okay, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. Next, next sentence. This could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and only love and love cannot be commanded. Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. Again, do you see how corrupt Christianity has been and how it has obstructed? the actual gospel message with this imperial legal lie that the God of justice keeps accurate records of all the bad stuff you did. And even if you accept Christ, and even if you are now uh, have a, are, are in, a, in a position of godly righteousness, you still committed sin in the past, and that sin is, illegal, is on your legal record book, and justice still requires God kill you for it. So you've got to have that stuff taken care of. Somebody's got to pay that penalty. So Jesus had to die, and God killed Jesus so he doesn't have to kill you. But he loves you. It's corrupt. Sin cannot be overcome by force. But when you believe it can be, when it's righteous to punish sinners, this leads Christians today to believe it's righteous to use the methods of government to pursue their agenda. That's the right thing to do. We have to get the right laws passed. We have to enforce those laws. It's right and just to do so. Keep on with the quote. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifest in contrast to the character of Satan. This work only one being in, the, in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the S-U-N, capital S, S-U-N, Son of Righteousness, must rise with healing 
in his wings. Who is the son of righteousness? This is a reference to Jesus. What does it mean to rise with healing in his wings? This is a quote from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Let's read Malachi 1, uh, chapter 4, 1 through 6. Let's read that. This is out of the NIV. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evil doers will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. For you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him in Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah before you. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. The Hebrew translated wings doesn't mean simply wings that give flight to a bird. It also means wings like the wings of a building. He's on the south wing of that building. You know how that uses it. It means that too. And what it actually means, the wings then, are not about flight. They're about the things that extend out from. And so this is the S-U-N, Son of Righteousness, who comes with healing in the wings that extend out from the sun or the things. And what is it that extends out from the sun? Rays or beams of light. He is coming with healing in the beams of light that extend out from him. And light is a metaphor for truth. This is what he's rising with healing in his, this is talking about the second coming of Christ. It's telling us that all the sinners who refuse healing will be annihilated, die and be no more, turned back to dust. But those who trust Jesus don't have to worry because we will be saved. He is transforming and healing us with the beams of love and truth that are rising as he is rising, becoming brighter and brighter as he the day is approaching. What caused the loyal angels in Adam and Eve to become disloyal to God? Lies, which uh, metaphorically is likened unto darkness. And therefore, light is the truth that dispels the Darkness. And that's why the Bible says darkness covers the people. Gross darkness covers the people. So imagine you're in a dark cave, and you've been in that cave for a week without any light. No lamp, no lantern. It's been completely pitch black. No light of any kind for a week. And they bring you out immediately into the noonday sun. What would that be like for you? Put me back in the cave. You run back into the cave. It's so painful, you run back into darkness. How about they bring you out at 4 a.m. and they let you sit there as the sun rises? What is that like? That is not a problem at all. The sun of righteousness is rising gradually with healing in his rays. At this time in earth's history, God's spirit is revealing more and more and more truth, more and more light. Those of us who are growing and moving forward in the truth, we're assimilating and partaking of that light, and we are being transformed, we're being healed, we are growing in that, and then we have more, and we're growing in it, and we have more, and we're growing in it, until the day comes when he appears in And we will celebrate. This is our God. We have waited for him because the Bible says when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him face to face for we shall be like him, the Bible says. But those who have not assimilated the truth, have rejected the truth, stayed in the cave of darkness. When he appears, they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them. Because this is the light of infinite truth. They haven't had the truth come in and transform them, heal them, restore them. Thus the truth exposes their actual condition. They have awareness of their own corruption, their own guilt, their own shame. They don't want to see it. The truth is painful to them. It's not an infliction. It's the unavoidable consequence of unremedied sin in the heart, mind, and characters of people. 
And these people, rather than embracing truth and, and being transformed, they prefer not to exist. They don't want to live in a universe that operates on love and truth. They love corruption. They love exploitation. They love power over. They love dominating. They love cruelty to animals. They don't want to live there. So this son of righteousness that is rising, that we're assimilating the truth, that we're being transformed, we are being restored to the glory. Fear God and give glory to Him. Okay, This is the same as the cleansing of the sanctuary message. Same message. Same prophecy. God is cleansing a people from sin to prepare them to meet Him face to face. But before this happens, before he actually comes face to face, the prophet Elijah must come again. Why? Just like Elijah of old, he was called by God to call people to a decision at Mount Carmel. If God is like this, worship him. If God is like Baal, worship him. Well, who was Baal? I've said this before, but I just find it so powerful and instructive to review this and reflect on this. Baal, at the time of Elijah, was a a Mesopotamian god that was the son of El. E-L, El. As in Elohim, or El Shaddai. Baal was the son of El. El was the father. Baal was the son. Baal was the god of weather, called the Almighty, the Lord of the earth. He was the god that brought rain, thunder, lightning, fertilized the earth, brought a good harvest. He controlled the sun. Baal fought the great serpent, Leviathan, in behalf of people to protect us. He also fought against the god of death, Moat. And in his battle with Moat, Baal dies and rises again, is resurrected, to bring life to the earth. Now, do you worship a god who is the son of the father, who is the creator, who controls the weather, who brings fertility and harvest to your, your, your plantation your, and, your, and your farm, who brings life, who fights the serpent on our behalf, who fights against death and dies for us and rises again to bring us life. Do you worship a God like this? This is who they worshiped. And Elijah called them away from worshiping this God. Why? What was wrong with Baal? Well, here's what one Christian writer identifies as the problem. All these elements. You see, Satan's counter. You see how close the counterfeit. I'm going to show you what the real element that made it false worship just right here is in this quote. But all those elements I showed you so far don't make it false, do they? This is what Satan does. He approximates very closely the true, but he weaves in a, a core lie. Notice what the core lie is that makes it false. And you will see that much of Christianity is bought the lie. This is out of Prophets and Kings, page 124. Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continue to offer sacrifices to their gods and to call upon them night and day to refresh the earth. With costly offerings, the priests attempt to appease the anger of their gods. See, their gods are imperial. They set up rules. If you break rules, somebody has to pay a price. 1 Kings 18.28 says it this way, So the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their custom until the blood flowed. See, it was their custom to offer sacrifices of blood to the do- to their to their gods in order to pay what the gods needed for the gods to give blessings. This is paganism. Now, Baal became Zeus to the Greeks, god of thunder, Jupiter to the Romans, Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to all the Christians who worship a God who has to have the payment of a blood sacrifice in order to not kill you. Understand why the prophet Elijah must come again, because the entire world is worshiping Baal, except for the 7,000 who haven't bent the knee. This is the corruption of Christianity with imperial law, It's taught in every denomination. It's taught in the Adventist church that God, in order to be just, must kill you and require the blood of an innocent human sacrifice to take the penalty and have that blood presented to him in your behalf or else he's legally required to kill you. That's Baal worship. So do you see why Malachi says before 
The glory of God can be revealed before the people can be prepared, before the cleansing of the temple, the hearts and minds of the people. The prophet Elijah must come again. The, the, the message of Elijah needs to go forth. If God is like Baal, then worship him. But if God is like Yahweh, the creator, the sustainer, the lover of our souls, the one who creates reality and whose laws are designed, worship him. Do we see why 2,000 years ago, though they had the Bible and the Sabbath, and the ceremonial laws, they still were sheep without a shepherd. And do we see why today many Christian folks are sheep without a shepherd? In first paragraph, uh, now we're getting to the first paragraph of Sabbath's lesson. <laughs> Jesus genuinely cared for people. He was more interested in, in their concerns and needs than his own. His life was totally centered on other people. His was a ministry of loving compassion. He met the physical, mental, emotional needs of people around him, and thus their hearts were open to the spiritual truths he taught. As he healed lepers, opened blind eyes and stopped ears, delivered demoniacs, fed the hungry and cared for the needy, hearts were touched and lives changed. No doubt Jesus loved people and always sought to pour God's love into their hearts. No doubt. 100%. Who decided what Jesus gave to individual people? Who decided whether Jesus gave this person sight or this person? Who who made that choice? Did Jesus always give people what they sought and asked for? Why not? Does love give people what they want or what's actually good for them in an eternal sense? Did Jesus ever leave people with needs that he did not meet. When and why? Do you remember in Nazareth, it said he could hardly do any healing for them because they doubted him so much. He had to leave. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't recognize him. They scorned him. Or how about the curiosity of Herod? Remember he was brought before Herod and Herod wanted to perform miracles? Why didn't he perform miracles for Herod? Did he give Herod what Herod wanted? The people, when they wanted to have more food, do you remember he didn't perform any miracles at that time, and they all walked away. What about when Jesus was tired and Jesus himself needed to rest? Did it ever say he left when there were still people in need and he went to spend time with his father and to rest? Was Jesus being selfish to retire from these needy people who had needs to go rest and spend time with his father? Was that an act of selfishness? I can't tell you how many people I see that come see me feel guilty if they take time for their own rest. There's a lesson here. One of the traps of the devil, if he can't get people to turn to choose actual evil, then he will overwhelm them with good projects to exhaust and burn them out. Where our first duty is to God, and our first duty to God is maintaining your own fitness for service, caring for your spirit temple. Love your neighbor as yourself. yourself. If you don't love yourself, it's not an act of selfishness. It's about act of self maintenance, healthy diet, exercise, proper sleep. In other words, you maintain your well being so you can stay in fitful service for the Lord for many years to come. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, Jesus always looked for the good in others. He drew out the best in them. One of the criticisms the religious leaders of his day had with Jesus was that he received sinners and, and ate with them. They were concerned because he fellowshiped with the ungodly. Their view of religion was one of estrangement rather than engagement. They were surprised when Jesus said of himself, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. No doubt again that Jesus loves us all and seeks to save sinners. 100%. But absolutist statements, always, never, those types of things, they always alert my mind. And it kind of triggers me to go, wait a second. Okay? Jesus always looked for the good in others. What about Matthew 23? Was Jesus looking at the good? Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's face. You yourselves do not enter, nor do you let those enter who are trying. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Was Jesus looking at the good in them? No, he, no listen carefully to what I say here. He was not looking at the good in them, but he was looking out for the good of them. He was not looking at the good in them. He was looking out for the good of them. When you understand design law, Jesus was diagnosing 
accurately their condition and revealing that diagnosis to them with evidence. This is the presentation of truth. And it was a final attempt at the near the end of his ministry to bring them to conviction for their salvation. Jesus wasn't seeking to condemn them, but to save them. And thus he was seeking their good by exposing their terminal condition. You're sick, guys. You're sick. You're metastatic. You're corrupt. You're, you're diseased in soul. This is the parent yelling at the child about to run out in front of a bus, raising his voice, trying to get the child's attention. And in this particular case, I believe, my view is believe that his voice was filled with heartache yeah. and sadness and grief as a parent having a conversation with a child who's stuck in some addiction and denies it. And the parents may, may have some intensity and even loud volume, but there will be clear heartaching grief and desire for the salvation of the child. Probably tears. And tears. This is what I believe is happening. I'm just going to read a section. I don't think I'm going to read it all uh, from the remedy section here, because uh, I think the remedy kind of uh, uh, puts this in uh, the flavor that I, that this, this, but here it goes from Remedy chapter 23, starting verse 14. Misery is yours, you teachers, you who teach a legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. Your false teachings obstruct people from being healed and entering God's kingdom of love. You certainly are not healed and do not enter into salvation, but worse still, you actively work to prevent others who want to be saved from being healed. In 15, misery is yours, you who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You go around the world trying to convert one person. And when you do, you indoctrinate them so deeply into your false penal system that they become twice as much the child of lies and selfishness as you. Jump down to verse 23. Misery is yours, you who teach a legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You keep rules such as proudly paying a pre-tax tithe and even giving a tenth of the herbs of your garden. But you fail to do what actually matters, to live in harmony with God's law, which is his design for life. You fail to do what is right because it's right. You are not merciful, but judgmental and critical. And you cannot be trusted to protect those struggling with sin. You should have lived lives of love for others without neglecting the simple instructions of God. You are truly irrational and unthinking teachers. You are so focused on keeping the rules, such as dietary laws, that you fail to understand their purpose is to promote health. You're so confused that you actually think it would be a virtue to die of starvation rather than to eat something not on the approved list. Misery is yours, you who teach illegal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You work so hard to make yourselves look good on the outside, but inside the heart is full of selfishness, arrogance, and greed. You truly don't understand anything about God's kingdom. The mind, the character, the heart, they all must be cleansed first, and then the outside will also be clean. Misery is yours, you legal, uh, you who teach a legal religion, you penal theologians, you counterfeits. You are like highly polished burial vaults. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside is nothing but bones of the dead and everything that defiles. You're just like that. On the outside, you appear to people as good and righteous, but on the inside, you are full of lies and selfishness and evil. You are great counterfeits. How much do we see this today in the world? People who present themselves as, I'm here for you, I'm here to save you, I'm interested in your welfare, while they're constantly manipulating for their own selfish agenda. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You sick and hard-hearted people who have rejected the remedy, killed God's spokespersons, and stoned those sent to you with the cure. How my heart has longed to pull you to safety like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. Look around. I leave your house to you abandoned without remedy and infected without cure. For I tell you plainly, when you see me next, you will say, he is the one sent by God to reveal God's true character and provide the remedy. Any thoughts about that? The design law just makes it so clear, doesn't it? Uh, second paragraph, it says, uh, the, the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees' religion was one of avoidance. They thought to do everything you can to avoid becoming contaminated with sin. Though uncontaminated by sin, Jesus plunged into the snake pit of a world to redeem it. Not to avoid it, he is the light to the world. How many today live in fear of something in their environment contaminating them? 
perhaps being afraid that someone at church will start a conversation that is not a Sabbath topic. Like talking about a ball game or the latest news. So afraid that that'll contaminate them on Sabbath, they come to church late, rush into the pew, and then rush out early so they never have to interact with somebody in the lobby who might mention something that's not a Sabbath topic. You, you don't think there's people like that? The lesson points out that Jesus used the metaphor of salt for his followers. And the lesson that salt, I will just read uh, Matthew 5.13 from the remedy. You are like salt to humanity, preserving the knowledge of God, providing the flavor of heaven, and increasing the thirst for God. Think what salt does. Are we like this? Do we, do you preserve the knowledge of God here on earth? Do you give people a taste of heavenly truth and heavenly love when they interact with you? And do you inspire a thirst for God's kingdom of love in others? The lesson points out that we'd be light to the world. Light doesn't avoid darkness, it shines into the darkness. And how do we shine the light of God's truth and love into darkness of this world? Maybe I should put it this way. How can Satan trick people to exchange light for darkness? Let me tell you what light is. Light is always truth, love, and freedom. God's principles. It's always light. Presenting truth, love, leaving people free. Darkness is always lies, selfishness, and coercion. It's always darkness. Satan gets good people to exchange light for darkness by exchanging these three elements. You don't have to exchange all three. Replacing one of the three with one of his. I love people, and it's the truth, so I will threaten and coerce people if they don't do it my way. We'll control government to pass our laws to make it be this way. Let's talk about... uh, Movements in the world today that seek to trap good people in Satan's methods. The following is an interview that Ellen White gave on November 20, 1895. And the title in the record, in the records, here's the title of this interview. It's very interesting. It's going to blow your mind. Words of caution regarding Sunday labor, the colored people, and the way to oppose error. <laughs> okay, this is going to be good. Okay, and this is uh, the beginning of her, this is the beginning of her comments. This is God's world, and wicked men are simply permitted to be in it. This earth was deeded to Abraham and his children, and we will come into possession of it before long. Who are Abraham's children? All those who have faith like Abraham, who have been circumcised in heart, are considered children of Abraham. Remember, he is the father of many nations. This is not about genetics. It's about partaking of Christ and having the faith of Abraham so that you have a renewed heart like Abraham. That's what she's referring to when she says, deed to Abraham and we will become in possession of it. Keep on with the quote. We must not feel that we will receive any help from those around us, but we must be where we can help them. We don't look for humans who are not on God's team to help us, i.e. human governments or political parties or movements. They're not there to help us. We are there to help them come into God's kingdom. Continuing on. When you begin to work, now this is going to blow your minds, folks. Hold on to your chairs. When you begin to work with parliaments, that sets the devil to work. And if he cannot make the work hard for us, who can? When you begin to work with parliaments, you're setting the devil to work. If we seek human governments to work with us in the advancement of God's kingdom, we set the devil to work. See, we corrupt the gospel and the church and the, and the people of God by bringing the methods of the world in, imperialism and coercion to work. This corrupts the minds and hearts of people and obstructs the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what side you're on, left or right. This is how all governments work. Continue on the quote. Do not let your work be known any more than is necessary. Let the truth work. How does truth work? 
We present the truth in love. We leave people free. And where does it have its impact? In the hearts and minds of people. Can you get the quote? Our best course is not to get up an exemption. Not to get up an exemption. An exemption. What's an exemption? When you're exempted from something, what does it mean? And who exempts you? The government exempts you. Okay. When you get an exemption, we should not, our best course is not to get up an exemption, meaning not to seek government to give us legal exemption for our ministries or activities. Just go about working the kingdom of God into the hearts of people, ministering and loving others. Don't seek the government to give you permits and laws supporting your work in the hearts of others. Just go do it. Continue on with the quote. God has given light that the least said about these things, the better meaning the work of the church in the hearts of people. It says, uh, in, in political places, continuing on, the devil and all his hosts are working to destroy God's law. And when you begin to work on those lines, he will stir up men to believe that we do not regard their laws nor obey their decrees. When we seek to promote God's law by seeking governmental exemption... It will incite some who don't value our law to think we're working against their law to then work harder to stop what we're trying to do. This is politics, in other words. Okay, Don't go that way, people. We are not to reveal all of our purposes and plans to men. Satan is working in an underhanded way, and he will continue to work. He will not work openly and above board. His power is to work upon human minds to make a start, to set a powerful movement on foot before the people's minds are prepared for it. Do we see this happening today? Underhanded methods, dishonest methods that are not above board, claiming one thing but doing another thing, designed to work upon human minds to set powerful movements into motion. Man, you have discernment here? This was November 20. 1895 interview. Okay, that was her first answer. Here's the, here's the question, the next question she's going to answer. Question asked her. Can we not get the truth before the minds of the members of parliament in a quiet way by furnishing them readings? In other words, books and materials. Her answer. From the light that has been given me, we should fear that these men and rulers will take their position against the work and then they will act like the devil. <laughs> Pretty plain. We should not expect political leaders to, uh, on either side of the aisle to side with Jesus. She said they will take their position against us and work, and they will act like the devil. Will the devil side with Jesus? So if they're acting like the devil, they're not siding with Jesus. Either side of the aisle. Why? Understand design law. Understand design law. The devil's methods are imposed laws with inflicted punishments. And how do all governments and legislatures work? So as soon as you solicit legislators to begin to support your religious movement, they will inevitably, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle they're on, if they want to support you, what method will they use? The devil's method. The devil's method. They will pass laws and force people. You can't get God's kingdom using Satan's method. This is quite profound. The only righteous God ordained, I want to say this very clearly, the only righteous God ordained purpose of human governments is to restrain evil. To hold in check the predators, the serial killers, those who would go to war and rape and pillage. The governments of the earth are simply to restrain the overt action of evil against other people. That's it. That's their only ordained purpose. They have no role in promoting righteousness. Because righteousness is an issue of heart and they have no authority there. Continue on with with her answer to the question. They will act like the devil. But every advantage should be taken to get acquainted with these men, not in a way to produce anything like prejudice. We must appear to them as trying to help others, working on the line of the Christian help work. Notice, we should 
show the politicians they have, that we have no interest in politics. We have interest in them, the person. We care about you. We're not interested in your politics. We care about you. And we want to help you, the person. And we want to help these people in the community. That's what she's saying. As they see the good work we do on these lines, their prejudice will be removed in a large measure and their hearts will be open to move forward or to, to open for more, open for more. Notice, if they see that we're not actually a political action committee, we're not actually out to unseat them from office, we're not actually out to undo their policies, we're not actually out to pose them in the political arena, we're not actually out to change their religion, we're out for their health and welfare, for their good as a person, as a human being, that we love them, then they become less fearful or prejudiced against us. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle. Continuing on with the quote, their hearts will be open for, it says, and their hearts will be open for more. Now notice when their hearts open, when we care about them, and they know we care, and their prejudices and fears have been reduced, and their hearts are open for more. What do you think that she would suggest that we now present or don't present? Notice these next words. Their hearts are open for more. Next words. Then, when their hearts are open more, we should not present the Sabbath. Amen. Wow. You hear that? But let us present Christ. Not the false Christ that the penal legal theology has been presenting for uh, 1,500 years or more. Not that false thing. Not that bail version of Christ. The true Christ, the designer, the creator, the sustainer. Continuing on with her words. What if they should begin to oppose you and say, oh, that's a Seventh-day Adventist. Lift Christ up higher and still higher. It means a great deal to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And how did Jesus work? Jesus, did Jesus work politically to change governments or did he work to change hearts? Continuing on with this answer. The world is not to be condemned until after it has had the light. We must tell them the simple story of conversion. The light of what? The light of God's kingdom of love, his design law, the testimony that Jesus gave, calling people to the eternal gospel, to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the fountains of water, calling people out of this confusing system of imperial Babylonian-type law and Roman law. Can we convert people? Remember, the simple story of conversion. Can we convert people through legislation? No. Continuing on with this answer, and then we have one more. The people are to be pitied, and we want to soften them so that the Spirit of the Lord can mold them. They have been receiving false ideas. Boy, oh boy, have they been receiving false ideas. If we come close to them and show them the love of Christ, we can do much more for them. The core falsehood that's being received is imperialism. God's law works like human law. That's from the churches. But then much of the opposition to Christianity is a direct response to imperial this, this imperial uh, religiosity that has come down from the Dark Ages. All right, last question that, that we're going to do today that she answered. Here's the question. Would it not be as well for us to present principles rather than dwell upon what the governments will do? Isn't this an interesting question? These questions are quite profound to our times today. Listen to her answer. We have nothing to do with the government's actions. Wait a second. Didn't she live in a democracy? A representative government? Aren't we supposed to use our political voice to advance the agenda of God? No. It always corrupts because all human governments are beastly and use the methods of coercion. We are not to do this. We are to stand up for truth, to oppose evil, to speak out against abuses, but with the focus of changing the hearts of people and bringing them to conversion, not to pass new laws that force people to act the way we think they should. Continue on with her answer. We have nothing to do with the government's actions. It is our duty to obey God, and when they arrest you, take no thought of what you shall do. What what you are to do is follow Christ step by step. We need not commence weeks beforehand to examine the question and plan out what we will do when they do so and so. Neither are we to say, study, uh, neither uh, regarding what we are to say, study the truth. 
and the Spirit of the Lord will bring your remembrance to what you will say. If we should let loose of Jesus and take up our own spirit, it may take months or perhaps years to counteract that one wrong move. What does spirit of self cause us want to do? See what's happening in the world right now. And, 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 and watch where she goes after this. What is, what is considered to be the, the, the righteous behavior in our world, in, in, in the news, in the media today? What is the right thing for us to do? Promote justice. Which is promoting our rights. Yes. Promoting our rights, that's the right thing to do. Right, or whatever. Notice where she goes with this. If we should lose, let loose of Jesus and take up our own spirit, it may take months, perhaps years, to counteract the wrong move. Unless many of us are converted and become as little children, we shall never see the kingdom of God. Pause on this. I've got to pause again. Was she speaking to people who were not church members? No, she's speaking to church members, and she says, unless we, many of us are converted. Because it's not about membership in an organization. It's about heart transformation. Being changed from driven by fear and selfishness and imperialism and coercion to the methods of God, truth, love, freedom, trust in him, trust the outcomes of him. We don't force our way. We leave people free to disagree. She was acknowledging that in the church, the wheat and the tares grow up together. And that there are many in the church who need conversion. Continuing on with the quote. Hold on, guys. In cases where we are brought before the courts, we are to give up our rights. Unless it brings us in collision with God. It is not our rights we are pleading for, but God's right to our service. See, the message today, it's my rights, my rights, my rights. Which puts who at the center? Self. Self, self, self. But when we have the perspective of God, it's, God, how can you use me to reach others for your kingdom? Did God use Joseph in prison for 13 years to not only reach Pharaoh and the leadership of that pagan nation, but to ultimately save his own family, which is the branch through which Messiah was going to come? Continue on with the quote. Instead of resisting the uh, instead of resisting the penalties imposed unjustly upon us, are you hearing what's going on in society today? And how many Christians that I know that are being sucked into this movement to promote the rights and the and and to overthrow what they perceive as judicial injustice? Because they are operating under the idea that God's law works like human law, and you have to fix the laws in order to have justice. You have to fix the government in order to have justice. It's a complete, complete delusion. Continuing on with her quote. Instead of resisting the penalties imposed unjustly upon us, it would be better to take heed of the Savior's words. Quote, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man shall come. Do you realize that in in the world today there are Christian theologies that teach that it is evil to promote the cross of Christ? That the life of Christ reveals godliness and love and action, but the crucifixion of Christ was unnecessary for salvation, and to promote the sacrifice and self-sacrifice of Christ is to promote the masses of people being abused by the few in power. And therefore, we should not hold the cross of Christ up as in any way necessary for salvation. It was the result of evil people abusing such a good man, to be sure. But it needs to be put away. We only need to look at the good life of Jesus, and the cross had no purpose. Because to emulate Christ, to turn the other cheek, to sacrifice when being mistreated, that keeps the oppressed people in the position of oppression. And we shouldn't do that. This is a theology being taught today, and it's rooted, this type of theology is part of what you're seeing in society today. 
It's a fundamental misunderstanding of reality. This type of theology, again, is reacting to the wine of Babylon we talked about. It's reacting to the lie that God's law works like human law. And, there, and, and therefore, it's just and right to torture innocent people. They're correct for rejecting that. It's not just and right to torture innocent people, but they don't understand the nature and character of sin, and they don't understand what Christ achieved at the cross. They see it simply as penal legal, and they say there was no penal legal reason in God's government that he should have to be tortured. They're right. And so then they just promote, but they don't understand that this is the only way that Christ as a human being could eliminate the infection of fear and selfishness from humanity and restore a perfect righteous character in humanity by facing death and choosing never to act in self-interest. And that's why it says in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Bible perfection isn't about sinlessness. It's about the maturity of character, which had to be developed by a human being for the human species to be sinless. And we're sinless in Christ. We have more to go through, but we won't get there because we're already over time. Jesus, and dear Jesus, dear Father, dear Spirit, we ask you so, we thank you so much for what you've done, and we ask that your Spirit will come and take the, the victories of Christ, the realities, the historical data points that reveal the truth of your character and kingdom, expose the lies, and, and solidify them into our hearts and minds that we can not only comprehend it, but we will embrace it and operate upon your principles to be lights in this world. Lord, the, the, the events are, are coming to ahead that you've told us about in your word and we can see the movements of foot and we ask that you will empower us and your people around the world to to be this light the lights for your kingdom in this very dark world and that that a great multitude will hear this message and come to the true kingdom of love we pray in your holy name amen